Welcome to Mental Health Explored, a podcast created by TogetherWell.org. We are a nonprofit dedicated to eliminating systemic barriers to mental health education, resources, and tools. We bring you the voice of vetted and credentialed mental health professionals. I am Michelle Thompson. And I'm Beth Rice. We're Together Well volunteers and the co-hosts of Mental Health Explored. We're not mental health professionals, but we do have access to lots of great people who are. We've got questions, just like you. Join us as we explore a wide range of mental health topics with experts in the field. Game begin. Advancements in computing technology have opened the floodgates to an infinite digital landscape. Here we scroll and swipe, shop and chat, and of course we play online video games. Among the positive aspects of online gaming include camaraderie, friendly competition, relaxation, and problem solving. On the flip side, however, gaming habits for some players start becoming problematic over time. We sat down with psychotherapist Mark Edwards, who helps people struggling with issues around gaming. Rather than blame technology as the problem, when people seek his help with gaming issues, Mark digs below the surface. Join us in part one of this episode as Mark explores some helpful questions, such as what does gaming bring to your life? How does it interfere? And what is the purpose of playing? Let's introduce him to you now. Mark is a psychotherapist in private practice, a clinical supervisor, and an adjunct member of the Master's in Counseling program at Sonoma State University. He's also a licensed marriage and family therapist and resides in San Rafael, California. As a professor, he teaches aspects of psychotherapy and counseling at the graduate and postgraduate levels and leads community seminars for parents and employees. He provides psychotherapy for children, teens, adults, and families. He's also a member of Together Well, and one of his areas of focus is online life, which includes online gaming. So, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So nice to have you. So nice to have you here today. So one of the first questions that we would like to start off with is, how did you become interested in online video gaming as one of the areas of your practice? I would suggest in a couple of different directions. I moved to the United States about 30 years ago. And accidentally, more than anything else, I found myself on the West Coast. And I found myself at the very beginning of the technological revolution that we're engaged in. And so as a result, I found myself using technology, using the internet, the very, very early days of the internet, kind of local bulletin board services, Prodigy and America Online when they were kind of state of the art. And found myself connecting to other people through the internet, found myself connecting to other people through video games. And obviously, as I've grown older, I've drifted away a little bit from that. But what I have found is that video gaming and internet technology has really become a part of everyday life. The clients that I find myself working with in my practice, not exclusively, but very often young men, utilize these kinds of technology all the time. And so as a practitioner, as someone who find myself working in this this space all the time, it's been a very useful thing, not only to stay abreast of what's going on, but also to be really actively interested in new developments. What do people consider to be healthy levels of gaming? We asked some of our Together Well volunteers, and here's what they said. 
as long as gaming doesn't interfere with other essential parts of life, I think that any amount of time is fine. Five minutes, all day, all night, as long as you take care of what needs to be done and maintain relationships. A few hours a week is fine, but if it is interfering with your work and our personal life, that is unhealthy. I know a lot of people that love gaming and there are a few things that I play, but I did some research and I found that this industry is enormous. In fact, some of the stats that I saw out there was that it is expected that by 2025, it'll be a $300 billion industry. So needless to say, the marketing is strong, the growth is expected, and the people love it. So knowing that we have such a desire to continue to explore gaming and entertainment like this as individuals, what do we do to understand the difference between healthy and unhealthy online video gaming behavior? I think it's a really important question. And I would absolutely agree. I mean, what we see at this point is that gaming from very, very small games that people are playing on their phones, very small apps on their phones, all the way through to fully-fledged multiplayer online lives. And Mm -hmm. frankly, we're moving towards what's being referred to as the metaverse and a lot of virtual reality experiences. This is a continually growth area both in terms of communication and entertainment. And alongside that, of course, we're beginning to pay attention to our usage profiles. We're beginning to pay attention to ways in which this kind of use, these kinds of games are augmenting our experience interpersonally, and also in some ways the way in which they're challenging our interpersonal relationships. So I think being able to start to think about and to define problematic use is a really important thing, not just for people who are playing games, but for people who are related to or loved ones of people who are playing games. The days where video game playing was a purview of only adolescent boys are long, long over. Mm -hmm. People are now playing games into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and we're looking at a massive international market. Because technology, online gaming, and gaming-related issues are all relatively recent developments, there's not yet a precise clinical definition of the phrase problematic gaming. Mark believes that there are some similar struggles with problematic gaming behavior to general addictive behaviors, but it's not entirely useful to simply settle there. And rather than calling out the platform as being addictive, he says the conversation is often very nuanced and needs to be focused on the dynamics of the individual players. Are there signs that we could use as markers, if you will, of behaviors that we might see in others or in ourselves that would indicate that we need to pay attention, that maybe things are getting a little bit out of balance? This is a new area. It's a new area of research and expertise and a new area of development for all of us. One of the things that complicates where we are right now is that we don't have a clear definition of what problematic use is. Right. We, in the mental health field, we revolve around a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's referred to as the DSM. The current version is the DSM-5 with a text revision, so it's a new version of the DSM-5. The DSM contains descriptors of all kinds of psychological struggles, some of which are very minor and very 
transient, some of which are much, much more complex and lifelong. In turning to the DSM for information about what problematic gaming is, we're left with a little bit of a blank. Right now, we have an area that's referred to as an area of clinical focus. And so clinicians, researchers are beginning to look at ways in which we can start to define problematic gaming. And frankly, the things that we have there right now, the areas for consideration in research, are really based around older models of general addiction. So when we're talking about gaming that's out of control, gaming that becomes problematic, in essence, we're looking at some similar things from addictive process. So we're looking at obsessive behavior. We're looking at thinking about the game when we're not playing the game. We're thinking about trying to give up the game or several different kinds of versions of gaming and having been unable to do that. We're thinking about the impact that gaming has on relationships outside of the gaming. But again, we're in, at this point, we're very much in the dark or in the very early stages of being able to define specifically what problematic gaming is. So you're saying that there's not an agreement at this point of what it means when we say problematic gaming. I noticed that you don't use the word addiction when you're talking about gaming. I, I tend not to use the word addiction because yeah, I don't think that it serves people who are actively gaming particularly well. One of the trends that I've seen over the course of the last 20 or 30 years as we talk about all aspects of technology is this tendency to look at the technology as being the problematic aspect. You see this a lot in discussions about social media. You also see this a lot in discussions about gaming, that the game itself, the social media itself, is, quote, addictive. I'm not sure that that's a terribly useful thing to do because, in essence, what it does is puts the emphasis on the platform rather than the player. Mm. I think a much more useful way to think about this is to look at the dynamics of individual players, of individuals using these pieces of technology, and ways in which the personality, the style of that person interacts with the technology in a problematic way. There's somebody who grew up from the 1960s. During my experience of childhood, I remember having conversations with my parents about watching too much television. This is a, a conversation I think that's largely gone out of the window now. We don't really think about what too much television is. But I remember my parents saying, if you watch too much television, you'll get square eyes. If you watch too much television, you won't go out and play. All of those kinds of conversations. We're now moving that same kind of concern to technology. We're moving it across to gaming. And again, I don't think it's terribly useful. Certainly, there are some aspects of gaming and internet technology that are very, very attractive to us. And it's important to recognize what those things are. But in my view, I think it's much more important to put the user, the player of games, at the center of the conversation rather than the platform of the game that they're playing. Technological innovations that at one time bedazzled us with awe and satiated both known and unknown desires within us eventually become taken for granted as they're integrated into our daily lives. Take, for example, radio, books, and TV. In other words, what's now old tech was once new tech. Mark refers to the notion of an ensuing, quote, moral panic that comes after the introduction of new technologies 
and how these new technologies elicit the same old human behaviors and often irrational judgments of those behaviors. Prior to this conversation here, where when you look at our society over time, you brought up television. So television years ago, it was viewed as you don't want to spend too much time. It's not good for you. And now it's incredibly common for people to watch two to three hours of television a night Mm -hmm. and to do it in a way that's almost collective. Like, oh, did you watch The Bachelor? You know, did you watch? Did Are you caught up on the show? You know, so there's there's this community around the the act of being engaged in this technology. Television is somewhat technology. You're watching something. Now we've moved over to gaming where you're interactively using your hands and, and changing the path forward rather than just watching something happen in front of you. It's very true. This really falls into the area of what's known as moral panic. And you see moral panic that has occurred right the way through civilization. If you look back to the 1930s, for example, many people don't realize that there was, certainly on the West Coast of the United States, as radio, as radio masts were being built further and further west, there were organizations of people who were trying to stop the building of radio masts because they were afraid that their children, given the choice of listening to Dick Tracy or going to work or going to school, would rather watch or, or listen to Dick Tracy. Yeah. If we go back even further, we can go back to antiquity. Everything we know about Aristotle, we know was written by other people. The reason was that he refused to learn to read or write. His belief was if regular people, himself included, learn to read or write, the oral tradition of passing stories from one generation to the next would disappear, that people's memories would collapse because you could write things down. So these concerns are not new. This is just a newer version of the same concern. It's a new technology. It's a new way of thinking or behaving. And therefore, because of its newness, it's quite threatening. In my social circle, we consider gaming to be a fun thing. Um, But I know that in other circles, sometimes it's considered a form of laziness. People don't understand, you know, different benefits, bonding, just fun and enjoyment that you can get from gaming. Um... I know growing up, I was taught some negative associations with gaming, whether it's in school or in other circles, people worried about violent games um, affecting development if you use it to forego other things like social uh, engagement. Um, But again, in my circle, I think we've found a way to include engagement and sort of get rid of some of the stigma that came with video games or just the uncertainty and use it in a positive way. Is technology good or bad? It's more complex than that. What's important, according to Mark, is our ability to take responsibility for how we manage our online lives. For me, it, it is, it's important, I think, to put something out there that's a little more nuanced than simply good and bad. Yeah. Right. You know, when very often when we talk, we find ourselves talking about technology or talking about gaming or talking about social media, the message is this is inherently a bad thing. These companies are 
out to you, monopolize your time and make you do things that you don't want to do. And I, I certainly am not an apologist for game development companies or social media companies in any way, shape or form. You know, there are a lot of responsibilities that are inherent in providing that kind of entertainment. But it's also, I think, really incumbent on us to have a more nuanced conversation about the role that we play. One of the things that comes up all the time is that these things are very often algorithm driven, you know, that algorithms are designed around the idea of giving us what we want. The problem is that they're very successful. The problem very often is the things that we want rather than the fact that they're being given to us. You know, and as anyone who's ever raised a child knows, if you get, you know, children want ice cream every day, they will exist on ice cream. If we give the option of giving ice cream all the time, then that can be a problem. But the option of having ice cream is a very natural thing. Yeah. We, we you know, we have to, we have to think about our own passions and mm. essentially take control over them. What is the allure of online gaming? A key aspect that attracts and keeps players engaged for long stretches is feeling a sense of purpose and power. Mark says it's natural to want to spend time where you feel important. So, binging on games until the wee hours of the morning? Sure, on occasion. He cautions, however, that it's important to recognize the overall impact of gaming on your life and to be aware that there's a boundary between feeling a sense of purpose in the game versus purpose outside the game. When we look at the healthy gaming or unhealthy gaming behavior. You shared that there isn't a lot of structure out there, but are there things that we should be actively doing as parents or as individuals for ourselves? How should we be assessing so that we can make sure that we're not getting into a, a place that could be destructive? You're saying here that it became normal for us to spend two hours a day on the television. Mm -hmm. But is it normal to spend two hours a day gaming or more? Like, how do you know when, when it becomes too much? It's very much in the eye of the beholder. If a gamer believes that they have a problem with gaming, the problem exists. Mm. Externally, however, I think it's important for friends and family members and loved ones to pay attention to essentially the two things that I talked about earlier on. The amount of time that's being spent, because gaming provides a lot of entertainment, it provides a lot of pleasure, but it also provides something that's kind of intangible but really important, and that is the belief or the understanding that I'm doing something, that I have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And within the game, that's very, very true. You know, you hold a certain rank, you have a certain, a certain level of expertise, perhaps you play with a group of other people and you have a role within that group. And that's very important in game. Outside of that game, however, it is valueless, it's worthless. Mm -hmm. So the focus naturally will turn towards the area where we have most meaning, where we have most power, we have most purpose in our lives. So thinking about the boundary between purpose within the game and purpose outside the game is really important. I'm a big believer in that phrase, you know, moderation in everything, including moderation. Sometimes it's important to be able to play a video game for eight hours in a row and go to bed at four o'clock in the morning, except not every night or perhaps not even every weekend. 
it's important to be able to be involved in that gaming life and have the the experience of having meaning and usefulness within the game, but to recognize that outside of that, it's largely irrelevant. I played games with many friends and family members growing up, um, and it made many internet friends through gaming over my life. The gaming environment is a virtual space, but things like friendships, status, prestige, and self-esteem are very real effects from spending time there. Struggles sometimes arise when shifting between the virtual world and real life. Young men in particular face a disparity in that while they may be highly recognized, even game famous, within their online circle, they may feel totally unknown and overlooked in real life. How does a player come back to a healthy reality? That's a really important part. And I think that this is something that I'm beginning to see a lot more in virtual reality games. Virtual reality games are very immersive. And we're really at the very beginning of the development of that particular kind of gaming. So the community is relatively small. I've certainly had the experience of working predominantly with young men who found themselves being very successful in that very small community. These are people who, because it's a relatively expensive and a relatively new version of the technology, a lot of people will choose one particular game or one particular style of game. They'll become known. They may join a team of people, sometimes people who are all over the world, for melee events, for tournaments, and they may find themselves known. They may find themselves known internationally. They may find themselves ranked and discussed on bulletin boards, you know, under their gaming pseudonym. And then coming away from that version of their life and slotting back into anonymity at work or anonymity in high school or in college, that can be a really difficult shift. And certainly in my clinical work, I've spent a lot of time talking with young men, particularly about this disparity, Mm. about the recognition that, I'm somewhat game famous, but then I go off to a lecture on Thursday morning and I'm just the guy who sits at the back of the lecture theater. It's startling. The the difference is a very startling experience. I was talking with someone just the other day, a young gentleman, like early 20s. I said, are you good at this game? You know, like a first person Call of Duty kind of game, you know, but I said, would you consider yourself good? And he's like, actually, I would consider myself too good. Mm -hmm. And I said, what? And that person wasn't really like a a boaster, Mm -hmm. you know, like they don't typically act like that. And I was kind of shocked by the response. And I said, well, what do you mean by you're too good? And he's like, well, I'm so good that it's really hard for me to stop playing. Right. So I think that becomes this dynamic that is incredibly challenging because you're successful Mm -hmm. and it feels good. I have these friends, it feels completely real, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to stop because this is so positive to me. And for me, the the important thing in that statement is, I have these friends. Mm -hmm. Because very often, it's not just the skills that I've developed in this game. It's the prestige that I've achieved. It's the way that other people see me or know me. Mm -hmm. It's, It's being a part of a team that I communicate all the time. This is, for me, particularly important. And one of the things that we know about sex differences in technology 
is that boys, particularly adolescent boys, utilize gaming in a different way than girls tend to. Mm -hmm. And by that, what I mean is that they utilize gaming as a way to connect socially with their peers. My experience, I think many people share this experience during the pandemic. I would walk my dogs in the evening and it would be very quiet, no traffic on the road. But during that first summer, I remember really, really distinctly the experience of walking through my neighborhood and hearing you know, windows open in people's homes and hearing particularly young men and boys yelling. And they were all playing Call of Duty or they were playing Onward with people all over the globe. Mm-hmm. I had this very kind of warm experience of you know, even in this moment where we're all so incredibly separated, these kids are finding each other by shooting each other and organizing themselves around some kind of tournament. So mm-hmm. that that is the piece that I think is really important. Again, it's not necessarily the shooting, the killing, the dying, the respawning. Yeah. It's, yeah. I found my tribe, I found my people. Yeah. This is the thing that I'm really enjoying. And of course, when we compare that to the way in which socially and in, in real life or in what used to be referred to as meat space that we all exist in, we're becoming further and further apart. Yeah. So it is in some ways a lower stakes way to be very socially connected and, and to build a sense of self-esteem. Exactly. I was just going to say, it's got to be somewhat confusing for the gamer because in talking a little bit further with that gentleman that I was speaking with, I know that he mentioned that he had a friend that was in another country. And he Mm -hmm. knew that the guy had two young kids and that he was married and that he had to go to work. And like, there's this whole alternate reality. Mm -hmm. And, and I guess the thing that we have to try to discern is, is it okay to have this alternate reality or is it unproductive and unhealthy? We don't have the ability to easily draw that line, Mm -hmm. but I can see how it could be really difficult to navigate that space and to think, I don't want to go away from this friend I made friends with. You know, I enjoy playing this game with so-and-so. According to a 2017 Pew Research Center finding, the biggest group of gamers in America is comprised of males, 18 to 29 years old. 72% of males in this age group either often or sometimes play video games. In the work that I'm doing with, particularly with young men, a lot of the time it's around really building executive functioning. It's building mm-hmm. some controls around our impulsive behavior. It's recognizing that I would like to stay up until three o'clock in the morning playing this game, but that's a problem because I have to get up and go to work tomorrow. So it's beginning to develop mm-hmm. the essentially the psychological muscle strength to be able to say, this is something that I want, and I know it's probably not the best for me. Yeah, I think about teenage boys, what kind of impulse control do they really have? Is there some point along the way between, I love this, I'm having fun, to, oh no, it's too much? You know, how can we kind of navigate that space so that we don't tip over? I, I think you hit on something that's really important, that this is a developmental struggle. You know, that we can't expect 12-year-olds and 22-year-olds to respond in the same way. Because what we are developing over that time period is some prefrontal cortex control, which is responsible for all of that kind of higher functioning, that planning, that impulse control, really doesn't develop until the early 20s. But with each successive month and each successive year and each example that we're given, 
an experience that we're given of exerting that control. That's how we develop that prefrontal cortex kind of executive functioning. There is a law in neurobiology called Hebb's rule. And Hebb's rule is what fires together wires together. In the 1940s, psychologist Donald Hebb came up with a theory about learning and memory. Learning is strengthened with repeated actions or thoughts. What's happening within the brain is that neural pathways or connections between neurons get stronger over time with repeated sparks of activity. Thus the phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the more opportunities that we have to make those decisions, to gain control over our impulses, the more likely we are to be able to do it. Now, when we're dealing with a 12-year-old, very often there's very little impulse control and a lot of that stuff has to be externally imposed. It has to be something that a parent decides. This is time to turn off your computer. The computer lives in a, a space where everyone else is. It's not in your room. Bedtime is at 9.30. Now, we would hope by the age of 22, with all of that additional experience and that additional modeling and repeated opportunities to make those choices, that 22-year-old would develop that skill for themselves. Mm -hmm. Some people develop it earlier, some people much, much later, but it is very much a developmental process. Okay. It's generally in kind of teens into the early 20s. What we find, and this is something that I see all the time, is young people who have been in some ways very over-controlled at home, so they've had parents who've kind of stepped in and, and contained and controlled every aspect of their, oh, so and they just haven't had the exercise. Mm. So I've seen any number of times kids who, during that first semester when they go off to college, they may be A students right the way through high school. They are loose of parents and in a dorm during that first semester, and their grades plummet, and they're not going to college. They're not going to classes. Right. And it's because... They haven't necessarily had the opportunity to really exercise their own control. It's just the brakes are off now and I'm just going to do whatever I want to. So it is a developmental process. Yeah. I, you know, I point people very often to a terrific book called Raising an Adult. And Raising an Adult was written by a member of the counseling staff at Stanford. And this book really talks about very, very clearly is that the kids were coming to Stanford over her tenure of working at Stanford. Kids were coming to Stanford and every year they were getting brighter, but they had less emotional regulation and less kind of self-control. So while they were academically smarter, their experience in the world was getting less and less and less. Mm. And so in that book, she actually proposes these are the things that your child should be doing by 14 mm. and by 15 and by 16. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of different tasks. There are things like being able to being able to talk to your boss about getting a raise. That's great. Being able to think about your finance. It's like a checklist. Yeah, being able to do your own laundry. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrific book. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. But it's it's all of those skills that, that will be necessary for college right. that most parents are not thinking about. They're thinking about academics because yeah. that's really important. Right. But if your child can't you know that I tell a story very often about being in college and I was in the floor that I was on in my dorm during that first couple of years. Mm -hmm. I was one of very few people who could press a shirt. And so I would charge people 
to a pound a shirt on Friday night. Genius. For that, it was it was wonderful. They would get a pressed shirt and they could go out on date night on Friday. And I had enough money to go out for the evening. Genius. And it was it was a wonderful kind of quid pro quo. Totally. But my ability to do that allowed me to make money off young men who couldn't. Yeah. And that was that was a long time ago. That was 40 years ago. But the dynamics are still there. Yeah. Well-prepared kids, kids with self-regulation skills are much more likely to succeed in college and in life than yep. those who haven't been given the opportunity to develop those skills. People of all ages play video games for many different reasons. Video games serve a purpose and everyone plays for a conscious or unconscious reason. Identifying the motivation to play could help a player become more in control of their gaming behaviors. Whether you're a gamer yourself, a concerned parent, or loved one interested in learning more about the gaming world, start by seeking to understand rather than just passing judgment. Our conversation with Mark continues in part two of this episode. Join us as we dig into understanding what motivates people to participate in online gaming. Unlocking the mystery behind gaming behaviors may do more than provide us with understanding. It could even improve our lives in powerful ways. Thanks for checking out Together Well's podcast, Mental Health Explored. If you liked what you heard and found the content helpful, be sure to share it. And please like, subscribe, and leave us a review. You can find us on all the major social media platforms. Please remember that if you're looking for a mental health workshop for your community, you can visit togetherwell.org to connect with a mental health professional. A big thank you to everyone on our amazing volunteer team at TogetherWell for making this podcast possible. Our executive producer is Dr. Michelle Haley, senior producer and audio engineer Brian Busas, contributing editor John Heenahan, voiceover specialists Dr. Matt Harris, Mitchell Bergen, Shweta Patkar, and Dr. Eric Jensen, design creations by Ruth Beltry and Malika Karieva, administrative support Sakji Punt and Shweta Patkar. This is Beth Rice, and on behalf of my co-host Michelle Thompson, we're so happy you're here. Thanks for listening. Game over.